0: Well, good morning. I'd invite you to read with me from Jeremiah chapter 10. We're going to be reading the first 16 verses. Jeremiah chapter 10 begins thus. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. A tree from the forest is cut down. And worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails. So that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. For they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of nations, for this is your due? For among all the wise of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are worked. They are the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple, and they are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power and established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. He makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breadth in them. They are worthless, the work of a delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. All right, will you pray with me one more time before we look at this text this morning? Our Father, we just sang it, only a holy God This repeated refrain that is part of what we believe about you, part of our confessions, part of what we see from you in your word. Yet, Lord, we confess this morning that we don't always feel it as keenly as we ought, and we often make light of you. So, God, I pray that this morning, in my heart and in the hearts of everyone here this morning, that you would have your proper weight upon us. That as we read your word, there would be a keen awareness that we are before the face of the living God. And Lord, I do pray that for each one of us here today, that regardless of how I may stumble, regardless of be it verbal slips, even theological incorrectness, Lord, I pray that people would be able to hear past me, but would would see how you have declared yourself in your word. And God, I pray that each one of us here would lead this morning with a more profound desire to know you, a more profound desire to make you known and to follow you, and a greater depth of appreciation for the gospel and for what Christ has done to bring us to you. Lord, we pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Christ. Amen. What is the most pressing question in times of trouble? Put it another way, what is the most important issue that should be on all of our minds as Christians and really the most important question for all of humanity in difficult times? I don't think that there can be any question among us this morning at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church that we are in times of trouble. We are in dire times. If we just casually browse the world around us, if we get on social media, or switch to the news channel, both things which do a lot not just to inform us, but also to reflect the heart of our culture, we are reminded that our day is characterized by chaos outside and moral decay inside. There are enemies, and there is the inward moral decay, inward sin in our society. As we reflect on our society, we see the ruin and the heartache that COVID-19 has wrought over the past couple of years. Um, We felt that somewhat in our church with people having to miss weeks on end of our Sunday morning gathering and the pain that that causes. But beyond just the physical sickness, we also see the division, the neighbor set against neighbor, and the family member set against family member, and the radical polarization in our society mixed with an uncanny amount of centralization of power and authority in government. On top of that, just recently, we were reminded of the real threat that faces us living in a sinful and war-torn world, Um, whether it was the riots that occurred last week where we saw businesses destroyed and people really hurt, or in more recent memory, the profound reminder that we had of the reality of hatred and terrorism with what happened in Afghanistan. It's all unfolding before us. We're being constantly reminded that there are threats, be they biological threats like viruses, or there are enemies that stand against not just us as a society, us as a nation, but more particularly that stand against the church. But we couple that with internal decay that we see around us, We're surrounded by hurting people that are the product of a society that is filled with broken families. But more than that, the moral rhetoric of the day is deconstructing the very nature of what it means to be human, the very nature of our relationships to one another and our understanding of ourselves. I trust you understand, you know, what I'm talking about. All we have to do is go a couple months back to the month of June and see what's celebrated in June to be reminded of that. On top of that we have the advance of what some people would term cultural Marxism and we're being shown that the only acceptable virtue in the public eye is expressive individualism, every person living their own truth and doing what is right in their own eyes and that's the only holy and acceptable standard of human conduct. So we look all around us and It's profoundly clear that we are living in times of chaos, in times of trouble. We are living in dire times. So we go back several thousand years to Jeremiah 10, and we can say, what could this dead prophet possibly have to say to us? Well, I would submit to you that Jeremiah was living in a time that, at the most base level, was not that different from our time. Jeremiah was living in the land of Judah, the chosen people of God, But they were being assaulted on every side by enemies without. Their sister nation, Israel, a hundred years before, had been carried away by a pagan nation and been utterly destroyed. But now the Babylonian empire is looming against the people in Jeremiah's day. And according to what we read in Jeremiah, not only are they looming, but they are assured by the very word of the Lord of success in destroying the land of Judah. 5.1 5:1 puts it in these, uh, these cheerful words. Disaster looms out of the north in great destruction." And then a few verses later, in Jeremiah 6:22, Jeremiah says this to the people of Israel, "Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses. Set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. Against you, Judah, there is this powerful and dangerous enemy coming. And the reason for the judgment, the reason for these enemies pressing in from the outside, was what was happening inside. It was the people turning away from the living God. The best summary for the moral degradation of the day is all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13, a, a verse that we hear often, but is so profound, both for our context, but for the context of the people back then as well. It reads thus, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water." So, what he's saying is, they had the worship of the living God in their midst. They had God himself as their portion, and they were turning away from that. And they were turning to all these other things. They were turning to the external pressure, the international peer pressure of the idolatry of the nations around them. It's, it should strike us as strange to turn from the living God to the idols of the nations. But the result was this internal decay and these enemies that the lord was sending against them so the people in jeremiah's day even though we aren't surrounded by people with swords and javelins and even though we don't have wooden idols that we're tempted to bow down to they aren't that different from us they're constantly tempted to turn away from worship of and dependence on god and tempted to turn to dependence on the idols of the culture, the idols of the nations around them. There are these external fears, threats, and pressures, and the pull towards false worship that these people were experiencing. And so what does Jeremiah have to say to a people like this? Well, I would submit to you that in chapter 10, what we see is, what's at the forefront of Jeremiah's mind is, What are the people going to worship? So in times of trouble, in times of chaos, for each of us in this room, I would submit to you, the burning question in our mind should be, what are we going to worship? The greatest imperative for us right now is to evaluate what has our heart's affections, what sets our priorities, and where our allegiance is. So the passage itself breaks itself up pretty neatly into, uh, into two parts. The first five verses, Jeremiah is just denouncing the idols of the land. Jeremiah, in a sense, is portraying the foolishness of these things and calling the people to turn from them in light of how empty and weak they are. But then beginning in verse 6 and going all the way down to verse 16, he is also commending the living God to them. So a good analogy for this is the analogy of repentance and faith. He's calling on them to turn away from something, to turn away from these empty, false idols of the day that they're living in, and to turn to the living God. And he's seeking to stir up faith in God in this song, this poem that he's giving them that describes the greatness of God. So we're going to follow the same order he does. We're going to see the competitors of God for our worship denounced through Jeremiah's words. So look again at what he says in verse 1 through 4. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of heaven, because the nations are dismayed at them. So what he's saying is, don't be afraid of what the people around you are afraid of, and don't be in awe of what they're in awe of. Why? He says, because the customs of the people are vanity. They're foolishness. A tree is cut from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of craftsmen. They decorate it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. So the first thing Jeremiah points out is that the gods of these nations around you are the work of men's hands. It's wood. It's, it's metal. And so I would submit to you that what, what's universally true about every rival to the worship of God is that everything that competes with God for our affections and our worship is something that's created. It's something that's made out of materials. They might be very nice materials. I mean, he says that they're decorating it with silver and gold. Most of us don't even have much silver and gold past our own wedding rings. They're crafted beautifully. He even goes further in verse 9 to talk about where the precious metals are coming from and talking about them being arrayed in purple. See, he, the prophet anticipates this argument that the people would almost make that, okay, you're saying not to worship these idols, but look how nice they are. Like, this one's made in gold. This one's covered in silver. This one's dressed in purple. I can't afford a single piece of purple clothing, Jeremiah. You're saying this is not worthy of my heart's affection when it is so costly, so ornate, so dazzling? You're asking me to worship an invisible God, when everyone around us is worshiping something that they can see, something that's tangible, something that they can lay a hold of. So I think that our hearts, the hearts of the people in Jeremiah's day and the hearts of all people are pulled toward things which on the outside seem very costly, seem very worthy, seem very ornate. But it's a little more than that, I think, because They were crafting these idols for themselves, so it's not like they, you know, pulled the pocket change out of the mystery syrup in their cup holder in their car, and they're like, I'm going to use this to make an idol. People would pool their resources. Rich people would spend their life savings to create these ornate altars and idols. And so we're even more tempted to give our affections to the things that we invest the most in, the most time, the most of our financial resources. But there's nothing in this world that should pull our affections and our hearts away from the living God. So humanity always has this pull to give our hearts to the things that we make with our hands. Maybe not, you know, physical idols, although I do sometimes feel like in our day there is a possibility that we might actually see more and more people return to giving their hearts to physical things. I mean, you know could be something as simple as as a dream weaver hanging from the mirror of your car, but you're like, this makes me feel a certain way. And you can see, like, our hearts have to attach themselves to something. And if we don't have God, many people in our day will end up turning to physical idols, I believe. But in these times of trouble, the emptiness of these things is completely unmasked. Jeremiah points this out. These are just the works of men's hands. And we'll get to this a little bit later, but just have in the back of your minds that there's a contrast here. And what he says down in verse 11 and 12, when he says, "...the gods who did not make the heavens and earth shall perish from the earth and under the heavens." And then he commends God as the one who made the earth by his power. Placing your hope in created things is turning away from the God that created Everything. So these gods that have to be created are contrasted with the God who himself is the creator. That's the unreasonableness of any idolatry, is that it worships and serves the creature more than the creator. Chooses what we can make above the one who made us. Or to put it in more modern terms, think about the fact that we tend to choose the things that we can give worth to and that we can give authority to rather than the one who inherently has authority over us and the one who sets the rules, God himself. So the people of this day, Jeremiah exposes their foolishness by pointing out that they were worshiping the works of their hands, but he goes on to note that these gods are worthless and empty. They can't do anything. And their worshipers grow to resemble them. So back in verse 3, remember he says the customs of the people are vanity. That echoes some words that he said back in verse 5 of chapter 2. The Lord is pleading with his people to return to him and he says, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? So not only are these idols that are pulling the people away worthless, but the people that worship them are becoming like them. They're becoming worthless. They're becoming empty and vacuous. This idea of vanity, this term of worthlessness, is what we're familiar with from the book of Ecclesiastes when, the, when Solomon, the preacher in that book, just keeps saying over and over vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And I imagine Jeremiah, because, you know, he was informed about the literature of the nation of Israel, was uh, well informed about this idea of vanity from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And he's saying, you're following after this type of vanity by giving yourself to these idols. Psalm 115 verse 8 affirms the same truth. Those who make idols that cannot move or speak or hear or act, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Or verse 8 of the chapter that we're looking at. They, those that are trusting in these idols, are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. I imagine that if Jeremiah were to post that on his Twitter back in the day, um, or, you know, whatever the functional equivalent of that was in that day, I don't know, chip it into a wall with some writing in stone, he might have had someone walk up to him and be like, hey, watch your tone. That's not very loving. Don't call people stupid and foolish. That's just their culture. But no, he's making it clear. It's dumb to worship anything but the living God. And if you worship something that's so dumb as an idol, guess what? You're dumb too. It might not sound nice, but it's what the people needed to hear. The way the CSB puts the instruction of idols is but wood is they say they're instructed by idols made of wood. But I kind of like what the ESV says even better. It's like, anything that they can tell you is worth about as much as a piece of wood. Do what you will with that. He continues to reinforce this point all the way down in verse 14. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. There is no breath in them. They are worthless, the work of a delusion. At the time of their punishment they shall perish. So, Jeremiah is taking a lot of names in this chapter. He's calling people stupid, foolish, their wisdom is but wood. And then he goes down again, and he's like, oh, by the way, you're still stupid if you're going after these things, and you're without knowledge. All these idols are worthless, and those who place their hope in such things become worthless. Or the way Isaiah 44.9 puts it, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. So there's nothing that these idols can give these people. There's no good that they're receiving from it. So Jeremiah is pointing out their unreasonableness, not just by saying these things are created, they're fashioned by your hands, but they don't do any good for you. And he finally, he kind of just hits the nail in the coffin by reminding them that their gods are weak, They can't do good or evil. Verse five, their idols are like scarecrows—not just any scarecrows, scarecrows in a cucumber field, as opposed to any other field. And they cannot speak; they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. So he's kind of arguing from the lesser to the greater. Your idols can't break the nails out of their feet get up off their little altar and walk around and do stuff for you. They can't say anything with their mouths. They can't stand up on their little platform that you've put them on and say anything profound to you. Let alone can they do any type of evil in your life. Let alone can they bring any type of bad against you or do any good to you. And, you know, it may seem strange that he points out that they can't do evil or good, but I think this verse gets at the heart of the driving forces of idolatry. The things that drive us to worship anything other than the Lord is our fear and our desire. So in Israel's day, the temptation to serve the idols of the nations was motivated by the evil they might do, what they might take away. And so I would pose to you the question, are you tempted to give your affections to give your time and your resources away from the Lord into something else because you're afraid you might lose something or the other side, doing them good? Do you have a desire that for you is so profound, that for you is so ruling, that you take your affections away from the Lord? There's foolishness in persisting in the worship of something that is unable to do anything that is weak and empty and foolish. Again, returning to Isaiah, which has a lot of passages that parallel this passage and pointing out the foolishness of idols and the greatness and the might of the living God, Isaiah 45, 20, is pointing out the foolishness of persisting in offering your worship to that which cannot save, that which cannot do you good. And it says about these idolaters, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God who cannot save. My friends today, I want to remind you, there is only one God who can save. So don't waste your effort on something that cannot save. It can do you neither good nor harm. So before we move on to the rest of the passage, I would just kind of want to orient our thoughts and say, how should we think about idols in our day? How should we think about it? Since we're disconnected from the worship of Jeremiah's day, um, I don't. I don't want a show of hands. I'm not going to ask anyone to stand up and confess. But when was the last time anyone in this room walked by like their closet where they stuck their like wooden golden idol and was like, "Hey, I forgot about that. Like that looks like it's worthy of worship." Or when was the last time we saw a statue that was made by men's hands that drew our hearts? My guess is. Not only are we not tempted to that, but we don't even know somebody who's tempted to that. Maybe, you know, we've met the occasional person that, you know, has a Buddha altar in their home. But even then, like, you know, they don't really care that much about it. So how do we think about idols? Well, I don't want to just casually say, like, what we're always tempted to say is like, what this passage means is don't worship your phone, don't worship your TV, don't worship your relationships or your political party or your family. Um, and just throw out a bunch of random things that I think people like, that I can tell them not to like too much. You know, um, I mean, like the new Apple products that come out, like every year a new iPhone comes out and it's like, you know, this has a better camera and much better processors and beyond that, like, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. And I was really excited to see that they had just released the iPhone 13, which has a better camera, better processors, and beyond that, I can't tell much difference. And I was like, i got to get me one of those. But I think rather than just say like, okay, hey, you know, don't worship your iPhone by wanting a new one, or rather than say, you know, don't worship a political party by saying who you're going to vote for, I would rather us ask ourselves the question, what do we desire and what do we look to to fill our desires? What is the most profound want of our life? And beyond that, what do we look to to fill those profound wants? And are we willing to give our time and our affections to in order to fulfill those wants? Or we could ask what shapes our priorities? How do we order our day-by-day lives? And who gets to say how we order it? And to what are we giving allegiance ultimately? When it comes down to choosing one thing or another thing, When it comes down to choosing Sunday morning worship rather than sleep, perhaps. Um, When it comes down to making a choice between two alternatives, who's going to dictate what choice we make? And if we look at ourselves in the mirror and answer these questions earnestly and prayerfully, we may find that some of our temptations are no less foolish than the temptation to worship an idol made out of wood that's empty that's foolish but jeremiah doesn't leave us with the negative he moves to the positive look at verse 6 he turns his attention to the lord there is none like you lord o lord you are great and your name is great in might so he's not just condemning the emptiness of idols but he's commending the living god and don't let it escape your attention that he goes from talking to the people about idols But when he shifts his perspective to God, he begins by offering praise to God. And therein, we immediately see a difference between the emptiness of idols and the living God. The knowledge that there is a living God who is there should immediately lead to our reverent worship. We don't understand God properly if we just have the intellectual knowledge that, well, God is better off than wooden idols. We understand God properly when we're driven to worship. Again, note the contrast. The fact that Jeremiah speaks to God underlines the fact that idols can't hear you and idols can't speak, but there is a God who hears and who sees Jeremiah. And so even as he's writing this to these people, even though as he's speaking this oracle to the people of Israel in his day, when his heart turns to God, he has to speak directly to God to acknowledge God hears what I'm saying and God sees all of us. So he asks this question, who would not fear you, O King of nations? For to you this is for this is your due, rather. Who would not fear you for this is your due? That's where I get the the sermon title is that at the end of the day, in times of trouble, our deepest need is to give God his due. Give God his due, not just in the sense of somebody owing something to a creditor. That is true. We owe God our worship in our allegiance. But Jeremiah, I think he means something, something else here. He means this is fitting. This is what's right. This is reasonable. And he's going to go on to demonstrate this. But before we go on to see what else he says, let's pause to think a little bit about this idea of fear. We don't like the idea of fear these days. Um, We go to great lengths, both as a society and as individuals, so that we don't feel like we have to be afraid of death and we don't want to be afraid of many things. But the fear that he's talking about here isn't the same type of fear that he's saying not to have against the gods of the nations. The people who worship other gods live in this servile, this trembling fear of what might happen to them or what might be taken away from them if they don't worship. And while it is true that the fear of God indeed involves a real fear and understanding that the Lord owns all the power over us, there's also this idea of reverence, adoration, and devotion that the character of God elicits from us. Psalm 211, after asserting that God has so much power over the nations that he laughs when they sit in array against him, calls on the people to do this. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So even as we fear God, we're compelled not only to obedience, but to rejoicing. And so, yes, fear the Lord. Fear is due to the living God, but let your fear be a fear that rejoices. Let it be a happy fear. It is much better to live in fear of the living God who loves you and who cares for you than it is to live in fear of empty idols who can do you no good. So this biblical idea of fear is a response to the character of God. For instance, back in the Exodus, the people are called to fear the Lord because they had seen what he had done in rescuing them from the land of Egypt. And we continue to read in the books of the law, in those first four books after Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. I know I didn't get the order right just there, but whatever. The books of the law are filled with this language of fear, of saying, Fear the Lord and obey, fear the Lord and worship him. But the fear of the Lord, lest we say this that's an Old Testament idea, okay, miss me with that Old Testament stuff. Let me get to the good stuff where we don't have to fear God in the New Testament. It doesn't go away in the New Testament. We are people who still serve God who must be feared. People responded in fear to Jesus himself. When Jesus first called his disciples, think of the time in Luke 5, when he gets in the boat with them and he tells them where to cast the net. And so they pull the net into the boat and it's so full of fish that the boat starts to sink. At that point, Peter was filled with a sense of fear and dread because he realized who Jesus was. And it led him to cast himself down and to cry out for Christ to depart from him. Can you imagine that? The fear that seeing the character of Christ revealed caused in Peter. But it also causes responses of worship. When Thomas realized that Christ really had arisen from the dead and he saw this display of the power of God in the risen Christ, he was driven to exclaim, my Lord and my God. Of course, Hebrews is filled throughout with the message that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So as we understand who God is and our sinful unworthiness before him, we are driven to reverent worship. And so Jeremiah can assert, who would not fear you? For to you, this is due. Among all the wise of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But Jeremiah is a good teacher for these people because he doesn't doesn't just say, don't fear idols, fear is due to God alone. But he goes so far as to demonstrate why you should worship God, why you should fear God. So he affirms that this is true about God, fear is due to him, and he demonstrates it. And the thing that resonates throughout this passage is that God is in a category all by himself. Yes, he is contrasted with idols, but as he says in verse 6, there is none like the Lord. There is none like you. You are great and your name is great in might. And he ends the section by once again bringing back up idols and affirming at the beginning of verse 16, not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. God is in a category all by himself. The things that are true about God are true of him, ultimately and exclusively. God is not the leading competitor among all these idols. I'm not standing up here and saying to you today, look, everything that competes for your worship is good, but God's just a little bit better. God isn't the LeBron James among the gods. Every year in the NBA, there's this debate that rages And, by the way, I've spent two years under Major League Baseball illustrations, so let me have my moment here. But, you know, there's this debate that rages every year, like, who's the best basketball player in the world? And there are, like, two camps. There's the LeBron James camp and the Everyone Else camp. Like, it's Kevin Durant, it's Giannis Antetokounmpo for the Wisconsinites in the room. Also, that's my Greek for the day. You know, all these different names are thrown out there. And the argument is, this person's better right now. And then the LeBron James camp will say, yeah, but if you look at LeBron's, like, body of work, he's so much better. Like, he has all these skills. He's done this much in his career. Like, nobody stacks up against LeBron. And so there's not an argument here that's like, well, God was God first. And so all these other things that compete for your affection, they came along second. And so, like, sure, they have a claim to godness. They have a claim to our worship. But God's claim is the biggest claim. So let's go ahead and worship God. God is not a leading competitor. God is in a category all by himself. He alone possesses all power. He alone possesses all might. He alone possesses all wisdom and authority. Every authority on earth is a derived authority. All wisdom on earth is derived wisdom. All knowledge on earth is derived knowledge. God is the greatest object of our worship. He is our maker and he is the only true supplier of all true goodness and all true beauty and all truth. This is one of the reasons why we have, over and over again in Scripture, a description of God as the one who is holy, holy, holy. As the one who is completely set apart. So God is exclusive. God is in a category all by himself. So, um, you know, Jeremiah is not playing, you know, Israel idol here, like... um, world's greatest God or, you know, the, the, the best of the deities that you can worship. He is affirming about God that there is nobody like him, that God himself is set apart. What are the things that he says about God? Well, unlike all competitors, God is an everlasting king who judges the nations. So after doing another quick put-down of idols and calling some more people stupid, Jeremiah says in verse 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. I don't think Jeremiah just inserts the word everlasting here, um, just, you know, kind of as a nice little extra. It's like, oh, by the way, I read that in Psalm 90, that God is everlasting. So I'll go ahead and note that real quick. But It's in contrast to what we read in verse 11. The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. So God was here before you, but God was also here before everything that could have a claim on your worship. And God will be here long after all these things. He alone is the everlasting king. And he is a kingdom according to this, he is a king, rather, according to this verse, who is able to dispense both temporary and final judgment against the nations and the whole world. So we think, we think as the nations stand up in rage against the living God, as the Taliban asserts that Allah is the one to be praised and life should be lived in conformity to him. That does not take God by surprise, but God is the one who will shake the nations. God is the one who shook Egypt and freed the people of Israel. God is the one who destroyed Babylon when he brought the people of Israel back. Where is Babylon now? Where's Alexander the Great's kingdom? Where is Rome that stood for so many centuries? Frankly, where's the British Empire? I know like we still see its effects, but Are we really intimidated by an old lady in a hat that waves at people right now? Do we really think she has any sway over our lives? And just as surely as those nations were in the hand of God, China's in the hands of God. Russia is in the hands of God. The Taliban Taliban is in the hands of God, and he can make the earthquake, and the nation cannot endure his indignation. And yes, the USA... Is in the hands of God. The one who sits in the heavens laughs at all of our show of power. So, contrast this object of worship, this God who holds the very nations in his hands and who can make the earth quake at his indignation. Contrast him with an idol that the nations have to make for themselves, with the gods that we have to set up for ourselves. There's no comparison. This should compel our fear and worship, knowing that we are in the hands of God, who can shake the earth and the nations. Returning to Hebrews, the author of Hebrews quotes the passage and says, "At this time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, "Yet once more I will shake not only the heaven, but also not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So God, who we know through Christ, is going to shake the earth. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Again, the New Testament affirms God is going to shake the nations. God is a judge, and this should compel our fear filled, delightful worship. Fear is due to God because He is the only one who sits on the throne of heaven everlastingly and will judge the nations in righteousness. Jeremiah's argument continues Unlike all other competitors for our worship, God alone possesses the power to create. We've already affirmed these idols are created. Well, guess what? God creates, verse 12, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. So Jeremiah is pointing to creation and saying, we see the attributes of the living God in the way that things are created in the world that is made. We see the power in the earth that he has created. We see His wisdom and how he established the world and his understanding and how he stretched out the heavens. As we know from Psalm 19, the very heavens and earth declare the glory of God. And the sky shows his handiwork. Or from Romans, the things that are true about God are evident. They are clearly seen in the things that are made. Even his eternal power and his divine nature. So our fear in worship is due to the one who created the world, the one who holds the power to create. He continues, not only does God create, but God continues to act. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of water in the heavens, and he makes the midst rise from the ends of the earth, he makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So God is contrasted with all the weak idols around him. If we read further in Jeremiah down to chapter 14, we would read these words. Are there among the false gods of the nations any that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. So the people of Israel's day were tempted to worship gods who, they were told, like Baal, could control the rains, could control the weathers, the happenings of the world around them. But we find affirmed over and over again in Scripture and demonstrated in Scripture that God alone creates the windows of heaven. God alone controls the waters, the tumult of waters in the heavens. He alone makes the midst rise. He alone sends the rain and the wind. So, we see these natural laws at play around us. We see the world working according to certain systems that God has put in place, like the water cycle, the midst rising from the seas and rivers and being dispensed on the lands, but it does so at God's command. God has a meticulous control over even the weather. So, God set the boundaries for Hurricane Ida and how far inland it would go and what the speed of the winds would be and how much water this storm system would dump on the land. Yes, we've been looking at God's providence recently and God's providence extends from the drops of water that fall from the sky to the happenings of nations to every part of our life. So we see God is affirmed as the one who alone holds power. We have the fancy word omnipotent. God possesses all power because he alone has the power to create and he alone has the power to destroy. God alone has the power to put the world in motion and he has the power to end the world's motion. He has the power to send rain and wind and storms. And This is profoundly relevant for our lives. It's profoundly relevant that the God that we are called to worship is the God that possesses All true power. Worship with me with this quote that I read actually just this morning from Tozer about God's omnipotence. A.W. Tozer writes, Since God has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for renewal of strength. All the power required to do, all he wills, lies in the undiminished fullness of his own infinite being. Words have power. Words have a power to stir us a certain way. And it's just remarkable to look at the people of Jeremiah's day, and you want to, like, hold this Tozer quote in front of their eyes and say, God has self-sufficiency. God doesn't have to look outside of himself for strength. God alone acts without effort. God doesn't get up in the morning and go to the gym before he does anything else. God doesn't have to eat divine cliff bars to help him get through the day. We are like that because we have borrowed power, and our borrowed power is bounded and according to rules, and we have to rest to replenish it. So we could hold this vision of God before the people of Jeremiah's day and say, stop worshiping wood and gold. But will we take this idea of God as the one who has the power to create and the power to destroy, the power over the phenomenon of nature and hold it before our own eyes and say, stop giving your heart to that which does not satisfy and stop giving your trust and your hope to that which cannot save the God of all power. What a basis for worship, hope, and trust. And I hope we see the profound practicality of this. If we affirm what is true about God to our souls when we read the scriptures, if we're soaking ourselves in the Psalms and in Job and in Isaiah 40 through 53 and all these other great passages that describe the character of God and his power and his wisdom and his understanding, his power over the nations, then we will not fear when we open our news apps in the morning. We will not fear when we turn on the news channel and everyone around us, and it just seems so often that even Christians want us to fall into this. Everyone seems to be falling into the, ah, the sky is falling. We're going to die. And guess what? There's no hope. We won't be shaken when we're given that silly message because... We understand who God is. We understand the extent of his power. People in Jeremiah's day couldn't understand it because they were placing hope in things that ultimately couldn't even move themselves. Let alone sin drain, let alone speak, let alone do them good or evil. But what a basis for worship, hope, and trust we have in the God who made the earth by his power and established the world by his wisdom who stretched out the heavens by his understanding, yea, more than this, who controls all things even now, who utters his voice, and there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, who can tell a hurricane where to go, who can, who can bring new life to a ruined soul, who can raise his son from the dead after his son bore the full eternal wrath of God against sin, who displays such power. This God is a God that we can trust and a God that we should fear because this is due to him. It's fitting that we should give this hope and trust and fear to the God who exists, the living God. And so, just quickly, Jeremiah kind of ends with a zinger. He ends with a, a really beautiful note because after acknowledging that God possesses all this power, he notes, again, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Do you not understand, O people of Judah, O people of Israel, O house of Jacob, do you not understand how dumb idols are now? Do you not understand how worthless they are? Are you stupid? Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, the work of the delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. So all of this is going to perish listen to what he says, how he summarizes everything that he says about God. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. I hope the people in Jeremiah's day said hallelujah when Jeremiah said this to them. The God who possesses all power, the God to whom all fear is due, this is your God. And you're his people. He affirms that God is the portion of Jacob. He doesn't just say that Jacob is his portion, he affirms that later that the tribe of Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. So Israel belongs to God. That's a given. But God belongs to his people in a way that that no other people can relate to him. Do we see the beauty of the gospel in this? One of the profound beauties of the gospel is that it brings us to God. It doesn't just make us right with God, it brings us into a right relationship with him. And every time we sing a song like, only a holy God, or behold our God, or "O great God of highest heaven, we get to affirm only through Christ that this is our God we turn to the scriptures and respond to God in fear and adoration and worship and a sense of ownership too. It's weird to say, but we have a relationship with the living God through Christ that no other people on earth have. So don't discount getting to come together for worship. Don't discount um, quotes from systematic theologies that Jeff might use and don't discount songs that are just about God's power and might just because you know it doesn't seem to have any direct bearing on like your conflicts with your teenagers this morning. It has profound impact on that because this is our God. This is our Lord. This is the one who is our portion and we are his inheritance through Christ. The Lord of Hosts is his name. Jeremiah ends. And so how do, we, how do we use this? How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, just a few things, um, just to affirm what the passage has already said, that the Lord is to be feared. But this isn't something that we just assume, and this isn't something that is necessarily automatic for us, but the fear of the Lord has to be stirred up day by day. The fear of the Lord has to be remembered. We have to remind ourselves of it every morning by studying God in his word by seeing what the Lord says about himself so when you get to Psalm 19 or Isaiah 40 in your Bible reading plan don't just be like I got to read this real quick so I can get to my New Testament passage for the day soak in it affirm who God is to your soul once again and respond to him in fear You know the people in uh, Jeremiah's and Isaiah. The people in Jeremiah's day were were being tempted to worship the things that their hand had made, and were being tempted to worship all these physical things, and they were essentially being tempted to worship the good things that God has given. God gave silver and gold. God gives rain. God gives the heavens. But I would commend you today to let the things that God has put in your life that display his power and his goodness, your family, your friendships, the sun and the moon and the rains and the cool weather and the warm weather. Let everything that you've been given be a conduit to turn your heart to praise the Lord. So let the fear of the Lord be stirred up in you every time you look at God in Scripture and Conversely, look at God in Scripture frequently to stir up the fear of the Lord in yourself. But another application is to turn away from idolatry. Um, And again, I know it's easy for us to dismiss this and say, I do not have a, a wooden god in my house, I promise you. And like, even if Indiana Jones were to come and bring me that little gold idol he stole from that temple that one time, I wouldn't be tempted to worship it. But essentially... I want to say, look at what your heart's affections are given to, what you desire, and where your allegiance is. And acknowledge reality. Idolatry is essentially nothing more than escape from reality and seeking to escape from the reality that God alone possesses power and immortality that God alone creates. But rather live in the reality that there is a God who created us, to whom we owe allegiance, and he is good. And finally, just remember that the real supply of all true good is nothing else in this life but God Himself. It's not a wooden idol, and it's not the latest gadget or gizmo, and it is not your family or your relationships or your political party, even though I said I wasn't going to say that. The only supplier of all true and lasting good is God Himself. So actively set your hope on him. Invest in something that is lasting. Invest your life and your hope and your trust in the living God. And rejoice knowing that we can know this God through Christ in a way that even goes beyond anything that the people in Israel's day ever could have imagined. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... This passage, and we thank you for the profound reality, the profound truth that you are God and that there is no other. And yet, Lord, I would say once again that we do not always feel this or understand it to be so as clearly as we ought, but God, I pray that your word would move and that it would bear fruit, that it would not return to you void, that we would see your power, that we would see your handiwork in creation and your handiwork in creating a new life and a new soul in a Christian and that we would rejoice and trust in you. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name.